You know, one thing that I take away from this experience is the, uh, I didn't know how much I would enjoy solving the problem. And uh, I'm really enjoying solving the problem. It is complex and regulated and lots going on and, you know, like many operational issues. And it's just a, you know, it's, it's a much bigger problem than I thought it, I thought it was. And it's actually just been a lot of fun to kind of pick away at. Welcome to the No Capital Podcast. Uh, we have a very, very special episode today because we're joined by a dear and old friend, Firas Salbut, founder of uh, Baraka. Uh, we'll let him kind of introduce Baraka and, and, and talk about um, uh, what he's doing and why we think that's really, really important. Uh, I'm also joined by my partner, Sara Burisha as well. So we'll both be talking to uh, Firas today. Maybe let's kick off, Firas. Uh, we've all known each other a very, very, very long time. Maybe what, why don't you start with kind of explaining a little bit about who you are and, and you know, how also we've met, which is part of kind of that journey. But uh, yeah, so over to you. Tell us a bit more about yourself. Thanks, guys. I'm Firas, founder of Baraka. Baraka is a commission-free investment app for the Middle East. We are launching uh, in the next couple of weeks. We've been working on this for about a year. And I, um, uh, you know, started this journey about a year ago to uh, create a retail investment platform for the region and uh, something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. I've been investing for about 15 years uh, before starting Baraka. I, uh, I obviously know you guys from that time for managing a family office for Fabi. Uh, while you guys worked at Wamda, we spent some time together in the office, some good days in that office. I uh, did that for about five years, and, and previously I was in asset management for about 10 years in the region, working for uh, Barclays and Standard Chartered, managing kind of high net worth accounts and, uh, you know, uh, investment portfolios and asset allocation models and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that I've been doing for a long time, and I just felt like there was a tremendous need for in the region. So I'm super excited to uh, talk to you guys about it and ultimately launch. So, Firas, um, why now? Like, what made you leave the banking world and trading world to become a founder? Look, it's a good question. I think there's, um, I've always wanted to uh, start, a, start a business. I, um, and honestly, the, the, I just feel like this is an incredible time in the region to start a business for multiple reasons, particularly in fintech. So, I mean, a lot of the, th some of the things that crossed my mind when I, when I started this journey was, you know, looking at, different parts of the world and what's happening with retail investing globally, you know, in the US, but now increasingly all over the world, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity, not just here, but everywhere, you know, for retail investing. And so we have, you know, probably 10, 15 years of growth ahead of us is my feeling. Uh, but we have very limited options here. And so, uh, you know, part of the reason why I started this was because people, because I was a kind of professional investor and I, I invest myself personally, People would always ask me about a brokerage, you know, where, where to open up a brokerage account. And I think, you know, even Khaled was probably one of those people. So we can kind of talk about that. But, um, and there was, there was never a good answer. It was always, you know, some of the, you know, the competitors that you guys know in the region that are international players that don't really operate here, but just have that you can open with. And it was, you know, the feedback that, that I always got from people I recommended these brokers to was it's a terrible experience. Uh, there's got to be something better. And I swear, you know, a couple of times people would say to me, uh, I'm just going to wait for Robin Hood to come to the region. And I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing I had heard. <laughs> and uh, 
<laughs> and uh, you know, basically just set out to create this. Just want to you know create a uh, a tremendous user experience for uh, retail investors. We, you know, we kind of deserve it here in the regions. Tremendous opportunity. Seventy percent of the population is under the age of thirty, with very few in investment solutions that cater to them. And so we we kind of set out to uh, to solve that problem. Um, before you go into like the baraka and and what like the type of uh, profiles you're look that you're targeting, just want to ask how does it feel to be on the other side of the table? Um, so you come. You were investing before you were an investor before, and now you're a founder. How does it feel fundraising from investors and being on on the other side? It's look, it's quite odd. I mean, it it uh, initially it was it was more challenging um, than it is now. Now I I feel like I'm I'm starting to get the hang of it, but it's uh, it's a different experience. I think when you are an investor, you you know you kind of assume that you know what's happening on the operations side and you grill founders and you talk to other investors and you make these presumptions and try to assess things from your point of view, but you don't really know what's happening on the day-to-day. And that it's it's just wildly different. It's It's incredibly different. It's a different experience. And so like we used to set, you know, targets for founders and say, you, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And we, You know, we used to kind of try to get into the guts of the business, but really, you're just really far removed. And I didn't realize that. You know, I didn't realize that as an investor. Um, uh, and now, being in, you know, you know, being operational is just is just different. It's 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 uh, it's a it's a different and unique experience. And ultimately, you kind of you come to realize that, like, as the founder of a business or CEO of a business or whatever, you are, you are the person that really knows the business inside out. It's not really the investors and so on. And then you like, you know, in, in terms of understanding, you start to really understand what goes into a, a, fi- a founder's mind about how you craft a cap table and who do, you, who do you bring on as investors and how people add value in different ways. And I think as an investor, you don't necessarily see that, you know, you're trying to just kind of get yourself on the cap table and you don't, really think about the whole picture. And I think now I think about the whole picture of who to bring on and why and what kind of value they add. And, and all of that kind of plays into your mind. So it's, it's a fundamentally different proposition, but it's, uh, it's fun to have done both well, to be doing you know, the, the founder side now, but to have also invested as well. Yeah, uh, when, when you were kind of coming, coming up with the Baraka idea, um, you mentioned before, That you know you want you you wanted to kind of build a business or, or or found something. How much of what kind of drove you was maybe you were in love with this idea, or that you really wanted to build something that's your own, or they kind of come together? I mean, what what was kind of your impetus when you know a year ago or however long ago you went like, that's it, I'm going to do something. Was that moment driven by I, there's this problem with retail trading versus I want to build something and then you found the something that you wanted to build? Yeah, I think it's three things. I think it's, it's I think it's you know both the things that you just mentioned and then probably also the market dynamics that really drove me to this point. But it's it's really just you know lining up all of those things all at once. And I had been thinking about what I was going to do for for a while. And it's also personal circumstance. I should just add to that. It's like, can you take this step? You know, mentally, financially, can you be prepared um, for what's to come? And so I had been kind of planning mentally and financially to to do something. 
So that was step one. But I think, yeah, I mean, looking at, at the market and looking at the opportunity that exists and just essentially, you know, the problem, solving this problem. You know, I've, I, you know one thing that I take away from this experience is the, uh, so I didn't know how much I would enjoy solving the problem. And uh, I'm really enjoying solving the problem. It is complex and regulated and lots going on and, you know, like many operational issues. And it's just a, you know, it's, it's a much bigger problem than I thought it was. And it's actually just been a lot of fun to kind of pick away at. And so solving that problem, lining up the market, the market, you know, the, the market dynamics, lining those up, my personal uh, situation. Um, and then, you know, some, uh, some factors in the market, like the prolifer proliferation of open banking now, regulations opening up, all of, these, all of these things kind of played into my thinking. I thought like, man, if all of these things are lining up, I can do this. And then don't forget, like it was COVID, right? Do you remember when I was, when I was raising money, I raised money during COVID over Zoom, hired the team over Zoom. And I, had, I felt so strongly about this opportunity that I decided to do it during that time. Um, because I saw that, you know, retail investing was actually not slowing down. And so the economy was in shambles and everything was just, you know, falling away. But what was clear was that retail investing was, was continued to go full steam ahead. And I thought, you know, at that point, I thought, if you can do this, if you can raise money during this time and you can get started, there's no better time to build, not knowing what was to come, obviously. But I just genuinely feel very strongly about retail investing having, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of growth ahead of us. And so, uh, so that's what, you know, got me to do it. Yeah. Getting into, um, retail investing, what, you know, there's been just so much, I mean, maybe zooming out for a second and thinking about the global landscape. I mean, obviously, you know, there's Robin Hood, the whole movement with meme stocks, uh, you know, access to capital markets in, in much easier, cheaper, more efficient ways than ever before. Um, you know, what's, uh, What's driven that globally, maybe? Like, what were in, what's made this such a phenomenon, you know, not just regionally, but on a global basis? And, and, and where, do you, where do you see it going in the long run? Um, I think, in, I mean, I'll answer that in, in two ways. I think um, if you're talking about just purely public markets, I think that, you know, what Robinhood did in the U.S. was, you know, particularly exceptional in the sense that they upended a traditional brokerage industry with some very big players, right? I think people discount the fact that they went head to head with like Charles Schwab and Fidelity and, you know, companies that have hundreds of billions of dollars under management really controlled the industry for a long period of time. And they changed the revenue model, uh, for better or for worse. I think there's a lot of question marks around that and, you know, to, to be seen what happens there. But, but they upended it and they created this, this opportunity for retail investors to invest with, you know, Five dollars, ten dollars, whatever, whatever the number is, which is unique. You know, never used to be the case. Now we take it for granted, um, but but was was never the case. There was, was that that industry was always riddled with fees, and and that's changed now. Uh, and so the cat's out of the bag on that one. They you know they've changed the industry, and that drove a lot of retail investors. Um, that's one. I think the other point is that. Uh, uh, technology is really democratizing every kind of asset class. And so like public markets is, is probably, you know, one of the first, but th this is going to happen in every industry. I don't think that people realize the extent of, of where this goes, right? You know, you see like a, a whiff of this with NFTs, for instance. Um, it's a, NFTs are a unique opportunity 
it's not for everyone, obviously, but like just think about what what you know the market was was saying about NFTs. Like you could securitize or you can sell anything. You can sell any moment in time. That what that means to me when I zoom out and I look at it is that you know a new class of investors, a new age of investors will will look at different asset classes or asset classes that don't even exist yet and assign value to them in the future. And so what does that mean for retail investing? You know, we could be investing in anything in 10 years. We don't even know what, what these asset classes look like. And that's the exciting thing is that, you know, we're starting with public markets, but it's actually going to happen in, in, you know, traditional industries and industries that haven't even been created yet. And that's what's exciting. I think that there's a, there's a massive opportunity. Uh, like just to kind of hold on that for one second, if I remember like the first deck you showed me, you know, you had that vision in mind for Baraka in the long run, right? To kind of have, it's not, it's not just the retail trading. It's kind of a much larger play about like democratizing access. And this was when you were at the um, access to kind of different asset classes, as, as you mentioned. Now that you've been in it for, I mean, I know it's not that long a time, but you, you know, it's been what a year or so you've built it. You have product. It's, you know, you have, you have active customers. So you're, you've been in it a year. Has that kind of, you know, if you were to kind of guess or forecast outwards, is that long-term vision holding about a bigger play? I, w- or not, I wouldn't say bigger, but wider play? Or because you've, you've been a year solving for the one thing, the, the access to e- global equities, are you thinking today that this is kind of the main thing you want to focus on? I mean, this kind of goes back to our the first question about, you know, being an investor and being an operator and uh, and maybe speaks to the to my, uh, you know, how naive I was at the time, because I had these, you know, grand ambitions about doing multiple things that I thought were really possible. But now that I'm in it, I figured like, this is actually incredibly hard. And so you've got to focus on this one product and make sure that this one product works really, really well. And so we now break that, you know, that customer journey down into multiple steps and really focus on you know, very specific areas. So it's not even just about the one product anymore. It's about, you know, you know, very specific areas in that, in that journey. And so, yeah, I mean, like we could talk about the, the broader vision is, is retail investing. Um, and I don't know where that, where that leads. There's a whole, you know, wide world out there of retail investing that we can kind of delve into. But today it's very much about delivering, uh, uh, you know, a great brokerage experience. Um, and then we'll see where we go from there. So Feroz, as you, like you're telling us a bit more about the different products, can you tell us a bit, but what did, what's the difference between Baraka and uh, the robo-advisory platforms that are popping up? Yeah, so we are self-directed in nature. Um, and so that means that you come on our platform, we don't give you any advice. You pick and choose, you know, from 5,000 securities that we have listed, ETFs and, and single-line equities. And you build your own portfolio or you buy one ETF or you buy, you know, uh, a portfolio of stocks, whatever you choose. The idea is that, you know, from our platform, from our perspective and our, you know, the way that we've built our brand and how we want people to interact with us is that we, you know, we won't give you the advice. You know, there's, it's, it's about you learning with us and building, building your own knowledge, right? So we try to produce content around, you know, but markets and, and financial topics that people ask us about. And the idea is that, you know, we, we try to, uh, we try to give you whatever it is that you need that, that we feel you need to, to create your own investments and, and take charge of your own, uh, 
uh, investment journey. And so I think that's the fundamental difference. While Robo has been traditionally about paying fees for managed portfolios, we basically try to, you know, uh, give you the tools that you need to uh, manage investments yourself. Um, and so that's, that's what, you know, are kind of the key difference between the two platforms. I just wanted to also go into uh, the, the fact that you wanted to go into the U.S. markets first and not locally. So what's the reason for that? And what kind of returns can you get from U.S. market trading? Yes. So the U.S. market is obviously is an anomaly, right? I mean, if you look at the U.S. market over the last 30, 40 years, it's been quite remarkable. Uh, average returns like you know, 10% a year. And so that means that you can compound your wealth pretty quickly. Um, in U.S. markets just by being a passive investor, you know, buying the S&P 500 index and, and holding it. Even if you hold it through all the ups and downs over the last, let's say, 35, 40 years, you've made about 10%. And so if you compound that over time, it adds up very quickly. Um, and, and yeah, that's the power of the U.S. market. And so, you know, we wanted to start there because, um, because we see the gap in the market and the opportunity. You know, you shouldn't be paying $10 a trade or even, you know, $5 a trade or $50 a trade in some cases, you know, some brokers still charge that here. That There's no reason for that. Um, and so we wanted to start there and, and see where we got to after. Yeah. And um, uh, so in terms of like the um, global landscape, I think you mentioned before also like somebody was saying to you, um, I want to wait till Robin Hood shows up here. But that that's, that's you know, you... You, I think you having been in it a year, you're seeing like the the immense complexity in like doing this locally. It's it's not just like people can just show up here and set this up quickly. No, or how do you feel about that kind of more broadly? Yeah, and, and nor does it always work, right? I mean, you know this. Uh, you've invested in a ton of businesses in the region that look like other businesses in other parts of the world, and the you know traditional incumbent player that dominates somewhere else comes here and doesn't do as well. Um, in, in some cases, right? And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, first of all, it's very complex. It's regulated. We have to spend a lot of time, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, we have, uh, the right licenses and the right processes involved and rightfully so. But ultimately, I think people want local brands. And so we're a local brand. You know, we're born here in the UAE. We're, we're based in Dubai. We have a, a license from the DFSA. And you can come by our office, you can meet the team, you can, you know, it's all of that stuff. And also we create local content and, and we try to take a very local approach as much as we can. Uh, and that's meaningful, uh, meaningful for the local population and for, uh, for the brand. Um, I think that's, you know, that's what we're seeing is that people are reacting to that. You know, they, they want to be told about what's happening in the, in the market here. You know, so we share, we have our newsletter, we have our social media is very active produce a ton of content and a lot of it is local content. And so that, that, that is because we feel that people are, you know, long for that kind of thing. And so we, we try to, we try to, uh, to, uh, cater to that. Yeah. Firat, tell us a bit about Y Combinator since you've joined a couple of months ago. Um, how is, how's your experience going? It's been great. Uh, it's been really great. Honestly, I, uh, you know, it's kind of like we're halfway through now and it is, we're kind of just leading up to demo day at the end of the month and it's getting a little bit more intense. And I, um, 
It's funny because I mean we're we're further than halfway through, but we're, I'm just starting to get the hang of what you know what it's all about. And YC is a phenomenal. It's like a school. It's a start. It's genuinely just a start, startup school, and you learn a lot. You learn a lot about yourself, a lot about the company you're building. They teach you to question everything. You know, contrary to popular belief, they don't. You know, they're the anti venture model, right? They're not about you know raise tens and tens of millions of dollars and scale very fast and hire like crazy. They actually take they they force you to take a step back and think about every little thing that you do, and so. It, it's great. It creates a lot of constraints on the business and constraints on your actual thinking on how you, um, how you kind of manage the business. And ultimately, I think that's, that's just a, a great thing. Um, and yeah, I'm, ju- I'm, just, I'm just starting to figure it out now, quite honestly. But the network is phenomenal. Um, you can reach out to founders. You can reach out to investors. You know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great experience. Um. I mean, you, you were up close with personal with us before, uh, when we all worked in the kind of same office. Um, and you've seen the venture model, uh, evolve in the, in the region and, and in the different geographies we operated in. Now that you're in YC, which has a much more, you know, uh, global perspective and a much more, um, you know, storied history. What do you think, uh, what do you think we can learn from, Yanni, from YC? What, what do you think they do super well that maybe is missing out here, if anything? Um, so if you were like, you know, talking to, a f- uh, just advising a friend who's setting up a, a venture business, what, what would you say that YC does very well that's kind of good learnings for us here? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think their, their franchise is just incredible and that they have, you know, a breadth of founders and stories to share that is unparalleled. So, I mean, it, it just, that, that's a big part of the proposition that, you know, can't be copied. But I think like in terms of the day to day, they really spend a lot of time digging into the business. They, you know, it's funny, like one, one thing about YC is that what I didn't expect, <laughs> which is great. It gives me uh, equal parts grief and joy at the same time, but it, they, um, it's a, they kick your ass, you know, constantly. And so they question everything. They, they, there's no free pass at YC. You know, you have to defend everything about your business all the time. And that's not the typical kind of venture relationship here in the region. And I think it's great because I think it, you know, it helps you balance, uh, balance your, your, your thinking. But yeah, I mean, like in terms of what can we do here? I mean, I think, just spend more time digging into companies, but also being like, look, they, they back founders, right? It's clear that they back founders. You know, you have a 10 minute call. They tell you whether you're in or out. That's it. And so they write a check in 10 minutes, essentially. That is pretty incredible. Um, and then they have your back. Um, it feels like they have your back, you know, through thick and thin. And so that's really helpful. But at the same time, they're not patting you on the back every day. Um, and so the combination of those things is, is really powerful. Right. Uh, so you feel like, you know, we, we have still have some ways to go in terms of thinking about how, how do we really back founders? Because at the core of like, you know, what we do is, is the founders unlock the opportunities. It's not it, the investors just there for the ride kind of thing. So how do we kind of like position ourselves here across the region as truly founder driven? I guess is that, is that, would that be fair or would you think of it differently? Well, it's still like, it's, it's a much 
less established geography here, right? Like in terms of ventures. So it's not it's not necessarily fair to kind of compare YC to the region. I mean, they're, they're like a storied franchise that's been operating for a long time. Yeah, I think, I mean, some it's it's different. It's case by case. I mean, VCs, VCs, VCs operate differently here. You can't, you can't compare an ecosystem to YC. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's things that we can learn, probably moving faster in some cases, um, digging into the business more in some cases, uh, creating a better kind of network for founders, uh, whether it's access to capital or just, you know, just advice. Um, that all of that stuff really, really helps. But just backing a founder, I mean, they're really good at just backing you, uh, which is, you know, you can't really, I can't tell you, I mean, quantitatively, qualitatively, it's, it's tough to kind of tell you what that, what that's like. It's just, yeah. So Firas, I think uh, we've touched a bit upon um, the type of profile of, of user that would trade on Baraka. Could you tell us a bit more about what, what profile, like what profile are you targeting or that would um, spend a lot of time trading? Well, I mean, we, we don't necessarily want to encourage trading. I think the idea is that we are a retail investment platform for just about anyone. Um, and so if you're a first time investor or you're a seasoned investor, we want to be able to provide you with a platform that you can use, that you uh, enjoy using, that you can discover new uh, opportunities on. But it should be, you know, intuitive um, and and just cater to to your investment needs essentially, and that's that's what we're trying to solve for essentially. Um, and the region is full of uh, existing investors, but a, a whole new wave of new investors will come online probably in the next ten years as they kind of grow up, because the, as you guys know, the region is so young. Uh, there will be a massive opportunity, and they will look for their own brands, and they will look for their own investment platform. And that won't be the traditional investment platforms that we have in the market today. Uh, and so we'll probably grow up. I mean, our aim is to grow up with a new generation of investors, uh, essentially. And you, I know you started with the US markets, but how do you see yourself going into more local markets like Saudi Arabia, for example? We think there's a massive opportunity for retail investors in, in local markets. Um, we're, you know, assessing the the opportunity very closely and working with different stakeholders. But what we want to do also is drive investment into the local markets if we can, because, you know, ultimately that's a great thing. Capital markets uh, for any economy is a phenomenal tool for wealth generation. And so if we can help or do our part in kind of encouraging that in the region, uh, we'd love to do that. And so we're, we're kind of uh, taking stock of the opportunity and working with different uh, stakeholders but it's something that we uh, were very keen to uh, to work with uh, um, other uh, providers on. Firas, how do you feel about the criticism that's leveled at these types of platforms from more established incumbent players that it can be um, dangerous for retail investors, that it basically kind of uh, uh, has turned kind of the world of uh, public investing into like a bit of a casino uh, you saw that a lot during the meme stock uh, craze. Is this how, how do you respond to that? Do you think it's uh, that's just a lot of legacy players that are pushing back um, and are feeling the heat from new and upcoming players that are changing their business model? Are there some kind of legitimate things to worry about? Specifically, you know, are do the investors know what they're getting into, etc.? And then how do you go about kind of educating 
your clients and your investors around that. But but just hearing about that overall um, uh, narrative from you would be great. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are legitimate concerns around that. I think that anytime you have a new wave of investors in a market, you should be careful about how they interact on a platform. And I think the number one issue with all of this stuff comes with leverage, margin, options, you know, a, a way to kind of increase your position in the market by 10x or 100x in some cases uh, for somebody who doesn't really understand how the market works is a very dangerous proposition. Uh, it can be a, a, you know, a fantastic wealth generation tool, but at the same time, it comes with a ton of risk and it needs to be carefully treated. And so... I think that is the, that, you know, from, from my days in, you know, on the uh, investment side and on the asset management side, you, you start to see patterns of when portfolios break and they they generally, generally for me always revolves around, you know, the excess credit or excess margin uh, or excess risk in general. And so, I mean, there's so many cases of that, but I think, you know, people, average retail investor investing hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars of their own money generally don't take an excess amount of risk and they kind of learn a, a very valuable lesson when they do. Ultimately, they shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of the market. What you should, what you should do is just learn about, you know, what you need to do as an investor. And so there's very simple lessons around this. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Average down or average your cost over time, which means basically just investing incrementally over a period of time. All of these, I mean, there's, they're very small lessons that you can kind of, that help you kind of build an investment portfolio. You know, opening up capital markets to retail investors generally, why do you feel that's like a good thing? Why, why should like small investors have access? You know, is it, is it just a bit too dangerous for them or they're not qualified, sophisticated enough? Why, why do you think it's a good thing? And sometimes the criticism of these platforms is that, you know, it's, you know, the, the, the realm of investing should be just for the, ultra high net worth who are kind of quote unquote uh, sophisticated investors? Well, I think, I mean, absolutely retail investors should have opportunities to invest in the market, right? I mean, they, you know, why shouldn't they uh, is the better question. I think the, for far too long, it's been uh, institutional funds that have been investing and then even passing down quote unquote, passing down investments to retail investors through mutual funds or, you know, other products where they were getting charged, uh, very high fees. And I think it feels like there's a turning point here where retail investors have started to understand that actually, you know, we can access, you know, we can access the, these platforms, uh, and we can make our own investment decisions. And I think it's, it's really generally my, I mean, my view is it's generally just the fringe that have a problem with investing on their, uh, uh, you know, investing themselves. Uh, probably the large part of the population invests and, you know, they grow their wealth over time and they're not taking a, an excess amount of risk, but there are some people that will trade excessively and, uh, you know, to their detriment, which is, which is a problem and they need to be, you know, helped. Uh, and I think that comes back to kind of like, um, not giving excess leverage and margin and all of that stuff that can really create a detrimental scenario for an individual. But, you know, I think, I think the majority of people uh, manage their wealth appropriately and should be given the opportunity to, to do so. 
Uh, and so they shouldn't be restricted just because they're a retail investor. Uh, they should be encouraged because it's a really good thing. I mean, you know, obviously getting, getting wealthier and understanding capital markets and, uh, and kind of building your financial literacy are great things for individuals and for society. And, and yeah, we should, we should encourage that. But obviously with guardrails, you know, people, you know, people need guardrails until you hit a certain kind of level of financial literacy. You can't just be left to, to, to kind of, um, to your own devices. So, yeah, I think, all, you know, possibly also ethic, like, in a on a more kind of general perspective, you know, one of, one of the biggest issues in the world today is, is wealth and income inequality. And a lot of it is driven by maybe people not having the same access to markets that high net worth do, right? So, so it, it sort of start, helps level the playing field uh, if you kind of extrapolate it to its logical conclusion. Can you see that as a kind of a long-term driver or, or not so much? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, like I mentioned before, we were talking about the proliferation of retail investing across different asset classes. I mean, we're, st- we're talking about public markets generally, but now you have platforms that are you know, uh, basically uh, democratizing access to hedge funds and, you know, all sorts of different asset classes. And so you see that taking shape uh, across uh, asset classes, which is which is actually quite interesting. It's more, I think there's a there's something else that we didn't touch on. It's just that people are just more conscious of the fact that they need to invest. There's a whole generation of people who are coming up now saying like, I, you know, I need to do this. You know, I don't know what's going to happen in 20, 30 years. And they are uh, less reliant on their kind of employer or their, you know, traditional uh, pension scheme and more reliant on, on themselves and, and also learning about markets. A really interesting point about this is like the Robinhood generation talks about stocks. They talk about crypto. They talk about investing. You know, it's less about consumption. Uh, what did you buy and what, you know, that's a really great thing for society. People that grow up thinking about asset prices and investing and um, growing their wealth over time is actually great. It's actually, it's actually, you know, very beneficial for, for society or a knowledge-based society, if, if you will. And so, you know, you want to encourage some of these good, this good behavior and discourage some of the excessive risk-taking, um, yeah, in my view. Awesome. We were talking uh, earlier before we started about, you know, the, the importance of optimism in being a, like a founder and also being an investor, right? Because you have to be optimistic generally. I think you were talking about it really beautifully. So it will be great if you can like uh, rehash it, but also like, why is it so important to be optimistic? And then why, why are we, why is this sometimes in short supply? You know, sometimes it's easy to be cynical, right? Like uh, it seems like cynicism is the, is the easiest thing to kind of fall into, but, uh, but, but let me, let me play that back to you. So why, why, why is optimism so important and to you as a founder, but also as an investor? You have to believe in what you're building or what you're investing in. I mean, it starts there. Uh, it really starts there. And if you believe money is secondary, so if you're an investor, if you really believe in what the founder is doing, money is secondary. You know, it, it's really about what they create, what kind of value they create from the opportunity at hand. And, and it changes a million times, um, as you know. Uh, so you have to remain optimistic because you don't know what the end looks like, but you have to remain optimistic that this founder or this business or this market opportunity is going to get to the point where you, where you think it's going to. You just don't know the way. 
you don't know the way that it's, it's going to get there. And I think that in general, as a society, we get better, you know, markets get better, societies get better, everything, everything just gets better. You have to remain optimistic for what's to come in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And if you believe in, you know, some of the, what we were discussing earlier, if you believe in kind of this you know, capitalist system, it's all kind of built around this is that, you know, uh, it gets better over time. Technology gets better. Health gets better. Everything gets better. And so whatever you're building will eventually just grow and, and get better. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, I'll tell you one thing, Khaled, it's like, it's easier for me as a founder to be optimistic now than it was for me to be optimistic as an investor. Ah, oh, interesting. How, uh, what, how come? Why, why, what makes you? That's really interesting. How come? Because I'm operating on a daily basis. And yeah, you get you know, hit across the face several times a day and you don't know which way it's going to hit you. But ultimately, you know you're going to figure it out. And you, know, you have so many different levers in your control as a CEO or as a founder. And you can pull them and you know, do different things to try to make something of the situation that you're in. If this business doesn't work, start, you know, like you can start another revenue stream or you can, there, there's many ways to pivot and many, many different ways, many different levers to pull as a, as a founder or CEO. You have to be creative in your thinking and how you can maneuver. As an investor, you don't have as many levers. You're very reliant on the founder or the founding team or, you know, the, the what, whatever, the management team in general. And, and so being a little bit further removed, I always kind of felt like, you know, you kind of throw money into something and you help. Like, obviously you have calls and you, you know, you visit the team and you do strategy sessions. You do, you know, as an investor, I mean, you know, the things that you do, but like, you just don't have the day to day responsibility. Yeah, now that I'm, an, uh, I'm a founder, I, I just feel much more confident and much more optimistic about you know, all the levers that we can pull and all, all the different uh, ways that we can, we can create value. And uh, Firas, so you're saying that um, essentially that so investors don't really get to know the business before they, like they don't really get to know what's the ins and outs of the business when they invest um, or when they decide that they, wanted to, that they want to invest. What do you think investors could do better to get to know the real operation or the real ins and outs of the business before they take that decision, since you've been on both sides? I think what we've seen with some of our other investors that have invested in, in this model globally from some of the international funds that we have on board is that they understand the model. And so they're, they're very willing to back the model, but then yeah. equally, they're very willing to back the founders because they, you know, they just know that it's like, if they're, if they're comfortable with the model initially and they're backing the founder, they know that somehow you're going to figure it out. Like they have a yeah. feeling that you're going to somehow figure it out. So they, their base knowledge of the model is there and it's because they've invested in it in different parts of the world. And so yeah. your starting point with those investors is that is not, hey, tell me about your margins and you know, you know, how, you know, how are you going to operate this business? They really want to know about you. They want to know about the founder because they've done it. They've done the business before. And so yeah. they move very fast and they, and they get it, right? They, they, can, they can kind of, they understand how it can work. They just want to know how you can make it work. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's one thing is kind of understanding the model in greater detail. Um, and probably that's a disadvantage for a lot of funds in the region that haven't invested in, in these models, you know, in other parts of the world. But just, just understanding it. And so not having, 
multiple sessions about first trying to understand the model and then trying to understand the founder. I think you know some some investors here have to kind of do their homework around the model itself and then move very quickly into understanding the founder because that's what we're seeing kind of. Yeah. That's what I've seen. That's been my experience with with kind of investors, global investors. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the Robinhood IPO and how the shared uh, price dropped this week. So uh, I know you had some thoughts about that earlier. So it would be great to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, it was, I guess, what they call a busted IPO. Uh, they raised $2 billion and I guess the stock price sank by 7% or 8% over the first couple of days. Yeah, but nothing to do with, um, it has nothing to do with the model. It's more... Um, no, I, I, I think there's questions around the revenue model. I think there's, I mean, very rightfully so, people are questioning the revenue model. You know, payment for order flow is, uh, you know, a questionable payment, is a questionable revenue model. And I think, you know, the market is taking stock of that, right? Like the SEC chairman comes out and says, hey, we're going to, you know, really look at this in, in, in detail. People take notice. And so whether you're a retail investor or an institutional investor, you, you want to see how that plays out. And so I, I don't think it's abnormal that, you know, the stock price didn't pop by, you know, 20 or 30 percent. I think it's actually pretty, pretty rational that people are taking stock of this. What I think is interesting is that they offered 35% of the shares to retail investors. They had pretty good take up, but it, you know, it's, that's not, you know, I think people are, are, you know, kind of assessing, like trying to make the uh, argument that because of the retail investors, the stock price didn't, didn't pop, whatever, you know, they're trying to kind of conflate the two, which is not the case. I think that's not, that's not the right, that's not the right part of the story. I think. What the takeaway from that story is that they, you know, the retail participation is the highest it's ever been. You know, they floated 35% of their shares to retail investors. I think at the time of the Facebook IPO, that was the highest ever, and that was like 20%. So something like something like that, I gotta check out those numbers. But I, I think that's important to note, right? The retail investing is real, and people are, you know, are kind of interested in retail investment opportunities. So, but yeah, I think that's a. Robinhood as a business, I think you can you can question the revenue model that they have in place today. But say what you will, 18 million users, um, 80 billion dollars in in AUM, and I think one stat that I you know I think is phenomenal is that they 80 percent of new users come from organic channels. That's pretty incredible. Uh, say what you will about their revenue model. Um, but they've built something that people like. I mean, whether you whether you like to say it or not, I mean, 18 million people using your app, referring uh, their friends and their family and so on. There, there's something right about what they've done. The revenue model is questionable, and I think that they need to they they need to work on it. And so we'll see what they come up with. But uh, uh, you know, I think they have a captive audience there of of 18 million people, uh, and so it'll be interesting what they how they react and what they do next. Oh yeah. So in terms of user behavior, um, comparing you know developed markets like the US with Robinhood to our markets, do you think there are any kind of specific idiosyncrasies or pain points or issues or opportunities with the way users will use this type of offering locally compared to elsewhere? Is there kind of specific um, angles to how um, people would want to invest here? Um, or it really just follows kind of a, a wider global trend. Are you asking whether people will trade more or less here? 
Will they trade more or less here? Will they trade differently? Would they be interested in different things? Is there is there kind of like something, anything specific to how you know you're thinking about Baraka for the region compared to like how Robinhood is dealing with the U.S. besides the revenue revenue model? The short answer is we don't know yet. We don't have enough user data. Uh, the long answer is kind of like people want access. We know that people want access to markets. Uh, what I hope people do is kind of build long-term portfolios. Um, like we kind of discussed earlier, I think it's, it's quite clear that, you know, the best way to build long-term generational wealth is to invest in increments over time and average your cost. And you could probably just buy the S&P or a, a basket of stocks. And that grows over time and that is very beneficial for you as an investor. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that, Khaled. And I'm also going to say this is not investment advice. Thank you, Firas, for joining us today. And it's been a great discussion. And we are very, uh, very happy to join, to be part of the Baraka journey and to, to invest in such a great founder and a friend. Thanks, Sarah. I'm really excited to have you guys on board and to continue this journey with you. Awesome. Thanks, Firas. Thanks. Thank you, thank you.